Atif? Yes, sure. 61-year-old man, he presented to his primary care doctor with one week history of melina. Workup including colonoscopy revealed the presence of a non-obstructing mass in the hepatic flexure. The biopsy revealed poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma. He had scans that were all negative except for the mass in the hepatic flexure. He underwent right colectomy and the pathology revealed a 4 centimeter poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma with the tumor invading the muscularis propria into the subserosa with no lymphovascular invasion. A total of 17 nodes were removed, all negative for carcinoma. His CEA before surgery was 2.1 and he came to see me 40 days after his surgery. He actually had seen two oncologists by that time and he really had a consensus. One said chemo and one said no. And he came to me to see if I can break the tie. I clearly chose the easy way out, putting him on a study. I told him we'll let somebody else (laughs) make a decision. His past medical history really positive for controlled hypertension and benign prostatic hypertrophy. And he was enrolled on the ECOG 5202 after very well-informed consent. Because I wasn't really sure I wanted to put him on the study because I had a bias. Absolutely what I would do for this What was your bias? You know, poorly differentiated 61-year-old, although he had no lymphovascular invasion, I really believe grade is important. It tells you grossly the face of the biology of that cancer. But he was enrolled on the study. So you wanted to give him what? I would have given him full fox. But you weren't so convinced of it that you didn't feel uncomfortable about putting him on the study? Absolutely. I mean, this is science valid. I believe in the study. We had a couple of patients on it. He signed for the study, and then we brought him back 10 days ago. And the minute I told him he's low risk, he almost jumped from out the chair, wanted to shake my hand and leave. He's like, wait a minute, but I mean, you understand what that means? He said, it's low risk. I mean, I really didn't know what low risk because I wasn't provided with a number. I mean, it's not like the Oncotype DX. It's like so I, you got like a message from the ECOG office? Yeah. I mean, and they said he's low risk. That's through it? my research nurse, actually, five minutes before seeing the patient, he's telling me, by the way, you are going to see this guy and he's low risk. Okay, okay, so what? there are no results? No. I mean, it's just low risk. I made him sit down and we went over it and he was really comfortable with the decision not to have any chemotherapy. He's Were you comfortable with it? If the patient is, I am. Absolutely. For he's being followed. This is just only like two months ago. Would you have liked to see more in terms of report or yes. something? Yes. Yes. I would have liked to see more about these biological markers that we are testing for. I mean, with Oncotype DX, I know exactly what they are. I mean, I know the estrogen proliferation, the hair to new, and I know these are very important. Poorly differentiated just worries me. I was curious what you two as trialists thought about, you know, how these things kind of play out in practice and something like what was just described. And again, breast cancer, you get numbers, your recurrence score, et cetera. And here, you know, it's not quite the same. John, you want to talk about ECOC? Well, I think it's an interesting thing. Number one is that actually you might check with your research nurse. You might have a little bit more of a report because my patients on this, they have actually gotten what the... MSI and 18Q statuses were. but What does uh, it actually say? I mean, so what, what it says, number one, is that the patients are just categorized into high risk or low risk. We don't have firm numbers. We have retrospective data in terms of combining the two from one trial, really, where they really looked at it. And it's, it was a prospective trial, but remember, because the analysis was taken out retrospectively, to me, it's a retrospective analysis of one trial where they combine both 18Q and MSI. We have multiple trials that show MSI status where you're either MSI low or MS stable. You actually have a higher risk for recurrence than MS microsatellite instability 
which would be moderate to high instability, not low instability. That's one of the things that confuses people. Low instability is the same as microsatellite stable. Can you make it more intuitive, too? Because I think the other problem is that... It's not intuitive. I can't, I can't make data intuitive. You know, when we get back Akatype, we know there's proliferation in there. We know HER2. We right. know ER. There's stuff in there. I mean, what right. is it? Well, this is an issue because microsatellite instability means that your genome has a tendency not to be able to repair these microsatellites that, when translated, frequently get translated incorrectly. You should... <laughs> Microsatellite instability predicts for a higher risk of developing colon cancer. That's HMPCC. You have microsatellite instability, you have HMPCC. That's your family syndrome, if that's a genetic thing. Why that translates into a better prognosis once you get the cancer is more than baffling to me. And so once again, data is what data is. And while it's confusing and doesn't make inherent sense to me, it's what it is. How hard is the data? I think the data for microsatellite instability is pretty good. It's been confirmed on almost every so trial. Can all you put a number? On, can you put a number? Can you say to this man, "Here's a your patient risk with a stage two colon cancer whose microsatellite instability positive, true instability, has the risk of recurrence similar to a stage one patient in the ninety percent range, whereas a person who has microsatellite stable disease or low instability, those patients are actually." more in the area of a stage three patient. So they have a 30 or 40% chance of recurrence. So can you drive that down more with the 18Q under 10%? I don't think that the two are mutually exclusive. You know, from what I've seen in the data, it looks like basically the 18Q is the same thing. You split them up. 18Q normal or non-deleted in colon cancer, those patients have the risk of a stage one disease. And this is really less robust data because it's got less repetitive data behind it. But 18Q deleted, you have the risk of a stage three patient. And the two seem to be mutually exclusive because if you have either one good, you're in the good prognosis group. And that's based on the combined analysis that was done on the old intergroup adjuvant studies. And so if you have both bad, that's when you're in the high-risk group. And so if both are bad, you know exactly what the results are. But if you're low-risk, you don't know if you were low-risk because everything was good or one of the two was good. So, this so that's why you know the report, I know I've gotten the reports on my patients. And to be honest, my problem on this study has been that I've had a couple people with high risk decide they were low risk and ran off. And we should, um, mention that, <laughs> we should mention too that if they are high risk, the randomization is full FOX plus or minus BEV, the same thing yeah. as we looked at at CO8. But if this man, let's say he had both were low risk, let's say that turn out. He said to you, what's the chance I'm going to develop a recurrence? What would you say? Well, according to the data that's been reported, he's got only a 10% chance of recurrence. Only 10%. So if you have a breast cancer patient, Atif, in your practice with a 10% chance of recurrence, let's say she's ER, HER2 negative, so take away the markers, focus on chemo, what's the chance she's going to get chemo? If she has a 10%, probably there's more than 50% chance she will take chemotherapy. And that's exactly what we see in our patterns of care. 46% of docs will treat a 10%. If you said to this man, your risk is 10%, we might be able to, of course, I'm not saying we know, but maybe we could bring it down some with full Fox. Do you think he would have been treated? You know, I actually told him his chances probably is around 15%. I mean, I just pulled numbers sort of. And he said, you know, 85%, I'm going to keep on fishing and retiring in the Keys, and I will see you in two months, doc. 
You know, Neil, I have to... Uh, yeah. Neil, one point to that is you might have a 10% risk of recurrence, but you have no data that Abs- shows you that of course. you could lower that Absolutely. with any further treatment. And that's why, I mean, the problem is, as you see, and we're getting the message, we are about a generation of trials behind breast cancer in our understanding and development of molecular markers. And prostate's and, like two generations yeah, behind prostate you guys. And lung, <laughs> well, you know, it's the breast cancer guys had the benefit of having the first targeted therapy in hands long before we ever thought about targeted therapies with just ER positive and ER peer positive patients receiving anti-hormone therapy. And they got used to interpreting data in terms of this is a molecular marker-based driven treatment decision. And we're behind that. And we're struggling to keep up. And we are working on similar techniques like Oncotype DX. In and NSABP cancer. is actually looking at yeah, Oncotype. NSABP actually in conjunction with Cleveland Clinic, Quasar, and NCTG, we have teamed up to really... Oh, so make, you guys are involved with that yeah, too? Yeah, we're involved with that That's too. not Oncotype, it's genomic health, it's right? It's genomic health, which is Oncotype. Same concept, same but not concept. the same assay, right? It's not the same assay. We have it, actually, they do already have a panel of certain numbers of about three dozen of different genes which are currently being investigated as prognostic and predictive marker. And that's actually an interesting point, too, because, you know, we're talking about two different sets of things. Prognostic marker that show you, okay, this is a higher or lower risk of recurrence, but what we really need in some ways for our treatment decision, should we use oxalplat or capsidin or fibrofu, is can we actually reduce the risk of recurrence with the use of a predictive marker that patients will respond to this treatment. And again, we sort of have that in breast cancer. Is Oncotype, we know if they have a high recurrence score, they have a huge relative risk reduction with yes. chemo. And that's where, again, we're about, I would say, two years behind that. Or let me put it this way. In two years from now, I would say we'll have a technology like that available. But then breast cancer will have a noose ahead yeah, of us. As soon is out there. <laughs> as soon got all these people, you know, down in the basement, you know, trying to find new yeah. stuff there. But yeah, How's the 5202 trial? trial accruing and how are people reacting to it? Is the trial going to get done? I think the trial will get done. Accrual has picked up. It did not start out quickly. And I think there are two issues. One is that there's this delay in finding out your results. It's not that long generally. We've not had any problems with it coming back in just a matter of days. But there is a disparity in how things are reported compared to the Oncotype DX. And that has caused some people to be a little bit dismayed. It's really, this is splitting you into two categories. We don't have the sophistication from these two tasks to be able to divide people along a continuum, which is what Oncotype DX really does. And so that's why I think you get this report that says high risk, low risk. Well, that, and of course, that's what determines where you're going on the study and doesn't determine a whole lot else in life except how you're going to be treated or not treated on the study, whether you can be randomized to chemo or chemo-beva or you're going to go on no therapy. And that's what you're really getting out of this assay as opposed to Oncotype DX where the design is to get a risk along a continuum. So when do you think the trial is going to get done? It's going to be a few years. I'll be curious to see if, you know, the uh, genomic health, whatever, the data comes out, well, how that will affect this trial. I'll mention, too, that in this patient project, the first year, I did an interview with John Marshall, and one of the things we went through was in detail, 5202. I mean, beginning to end. And then we said to these patients, okay, if you were in this situation, would you want to be in this study? And like 75, 80% said yes. So the patients, at least in our analysis, felt comfortable with it. Is that, Atif, what you're seeing? I mean, this man obviously was happy about it, but in general, do you find it appealing to patients? Yeah, I mean, I think out of five patients we spoke to in the last nine months, 
about this study, three of them went on to the study. I think one didn't qualify for some reason. Therefore, really, one just turned it down. Mm. I've put five patients on the trial to find it a little bit cumbersome. You have two consent forms, you know, you yes. consent yes. for sending the tissue to Stan Hamilton in the end and then consenting the patients again, you know, coming back and revisiting the results. But that's probably what we have to face whenever we do biomarker-driven trials in the future, and we might have to work on ways to simplify the consenting process. I mean, it's a problem, and kind of the truth is somewhere probably in between and very individual. First of all, what I saw from your comments is, Patients, when we talk about the informed patient and the patient is involved in the decision-making process, I mean, it's still a lot of patients just are overwhelmed by that. They're overwhelmed by their diagnosis. They're overwhelmed by that they have to make a decision and we are forcing them to make a decision. I think we have to acknowledge that. And sometimes it's taking them by the hand, either in form of a clinical trial or our opinion sometimes, a guided approach toward a treatment decision. I'd like to just comment on this information overload, which, you know, again, the stage two patients are the longest discussions I have. And we have this issue over and over again where we go over a lot and a lot of data nowadays. The funny thing is one of the most interesting articles I ever read was something I found completely coincidentally while I was Xeroxing off some other article from a 1950s journal in which they randomized half the patients to be told they had cancer and the other half not to be told. Wow. Because that was the standard at the time. You didn't tell people. Read Death Be Not Proud. They never told the kid in Death Be Not Proud that he had cancer. And this is a highly educated family, wrote books. So the fact is they randomized them, and the group that was happier was the group that was randomized not to be told. Now, I would never recommend we go back to this uninformed anything else, but you have to realize that there are patients who are happier with less and really do want to hand over the decision-making to somebody else, and they exist. And then there are other people who really want to have a full hand in decision-making and have gone through the Internet. And then, of course, you always have that far end of the spectrum, the group of patients who can never make a decision, go from doctor to doctor and seek 6 to 12 opinions, and by the time they're done making their opinion, they're hospice-bound. And so, you know, you do have these groups of patients. You just have to accept that there's going to be differences. But realize that back in the 50s, when they did this randomized trial, Patients were happier not knowing a darn thing. I wonder if like cardiologists go through this kind of stuff. I don't think so. Such a mystique about cancer. And, you it's know, the I mean, scariest word in the English language. You find me one that's scarier to people. But, you know, the things that we think about and obsess about, I don't know. I don't think necessarily that happens in other subspecialties. But 